good morning, evening, afternoon, wherever you are in the world. It is Harrison Smith back with episode 30 of my cinema podcast. So I'm hitting some milestones here. It's award season. And and as we saw, uh, Ricky Gervais uh, decided to go after Hollywood. To to what effect, I don't know. And and how sincere about all that he is, I, I don't know either. It could all just be for show. And the more controversy you can dredge up, the better. So they really uh, heighten that whole, what will he say? I wonder what he's going to say. You'll never know what he's going to say kind of thing. Just for us to tune in to watch him insult a bunch of celebrities and probably afterwards go, you guys know that was all bullshit, right? I mean, I have no idea. I'm I'm just pointing out that uh, I'm bringing up the awards thing because um, Joker is is up for a number of awards and and people are, of course, wondering and speculating if if Oscar will be in, in that film's future here. And uh, right along with that part and parcel, I started noticing all the gun violence and violence in society articles that come up that just have to link themselves over to Joker. Now, to be fair, a lot of this is is clickbait. And it's just to get people revved up so they can go right after, you know, the article, post their comments and and of course get clicks for for the article. So it's it's kind of low-hanging fruit. However, there has been something for some time and and it's been going on pretty much since the start of film. And and that of course is the the effect of film on society and uh, you know the the rise of violence and and such other things and that can be taken across the platform to all entertainment whether it's music whether it's video games and we're going to go into some of that I, I I do want to start by stating I have posted a number of links to this episode for you to look at in your time because I, I could make this episode three hours long and still never cover all that I want I want to make this very clear there is no single cause for the spate and and recent increase in school shootings, mass shootings, and and societal violence. There is no single cause for that. It's not as simple as there are too many guns and people have access to too many guns or mental health or or any of that. So this is kind of a quasi-disclaimer because I'm I'm not offering uh, really any solution here or finding a definitive cause for this. What I am saying is is that mostly film is a scapegoat. And people love to point to films like Joker or Taxi Driver. And believe me, we'll be drawing the comparisons between all of that. There, there are no coincidences there. And if people really want a true dialogue on this and look at real solutions to finding out what's causing this and, and what we can do to, to, to remedy some of this, uh, then we need a real professional dialogue, not view episodes and uh, pundits on on your favorite uh, network or cable uh, television show. This is not a political episode, and this is not a political podcast. What I'm saying is, if we really want to get to the foundation and, and real issues that are going on in our society, plaguing our society, whether, again, school shootings, mass public shootings, we need to have a serious dialogue about this with professionals, professionally moderated, and not rating shows, and a bunch of people sitting around clucking their views. Joker is just the latest of a number of films that get blamed for violence. You remember with Columbine, that what was the film? Listening right now, what was the film that got the predominant blame for Columbine? And if you're not saying Matrix right now along with me, 
then you were pretty tuned out and, and didn't know what was going on. And here we are, as I as I broadcast this, Keanu Reeves is finishing up the fourth installment of the Matrix series. And isn't it interesting that after the first Matrix came out and was a hit, the uh, subsequent mass shootings and school shootings uh, never got blamed on any of the Matrix sequels. I, I thought that was interesting as well, too. Uh, Alfred Hitchcock one time was approached uh, by some press for Psycho. And uh, I'm paraphrasing here. I'm, I'm not uh, giving an accurate quote from him, but you can find it online. But a reporter asked uh, Hitchcock what his feelings were when he, uh, the news came out that a man somewhere in the United States had killed his third victim after seeing Psycho. I guess this guy took to the press and said, well, what made me kill this victim was seeing Alfred Hitchcock's Psycho. And Hitchcock replied, as Hitchcock usually does in his very dry manner, I wonder what made him kill the first two. And I can tell you, as someone uh, who is a former educator, I saw a very disturbing trend coming along since the mid-90s, and that is the use of antidepressants and psychotropic drugs for anxiety, depression, all of that stuff. Now, look, I'm not... I got to say this all the time because there's going to be somebody out there, this, they're the white knight in the social justice warrior. Going, oh, you're blaming the mentally ill. You're blaming pills. I am not. What I'm saying is there is a factor to it. These drugs, first of all, there was an article that I posted this morning on Twitter with Selena Gomez who said that uh, the certain medication she was put on, apparently this, this young girl has been battling uh, depression and, and anxiety and a number of other uh, issues and felt that these new medications she was put on have done wonders for her. And you know what? I'm glad. Good for her. That's terrific. And they do have their benefits. I'm not arguing that. However, in the article, I did read the full article, there was a line that basically said, again, and I see this in almost all these articles, it's a consistent thing, and that is, no one really knows what these drugs do or how they work. They just know that they give the desired effect. But no one knows, really, even the pharmacies, uh, the pharmaceutical companies who make these things and doctors, they're not 100% sure on the long-term effects of these things. I'm talking about long-term effects on brain development and other issues, especially with serotonin. While this helped Selena Gomez, uh, they admitted in the article that really doctors uh, are not sure how these things work. And as a former educator... I saw this happening, and the number one thing that I saw was a growing lack of empathy. And I do believe that coupled with the digital age of the ability to go on social media and almost become a different personality and attack people, or the dark side of you is allowed to come out and manifest itself as almost another character online. Like some people are really nasty online, but if you meet them in real life, they're not that way. And it's it's almost like this dark half of them emerges online where they take out this collective anger on people. And they're, they're keyboard warriors, we call it, internet tough guys, all that stuff. And I, I once saw a show, or was it a YouTube video, I'm not sure, where they, they started tracking down some of these what they call now trolls. And when they confronted these people, they were actually very meek people. That, that shied away and were like, well, I really, I really didn't mean what I said. I was just kind of... You're seeing this outlet for venting and, and absolute venomous anger. And then, and then coupled with people that are on these medications that seem to be taking away the brain's ability to empathize and to create sympathy for people. And you hear a lot of the side effects, a lot of these people saying, 
I just felt numb. And when you feel numb, then going a step further with the anger and taking out one, two, three, 20, 50 people is really not that far of a step. When you have this bumper sticker mentality of everybody going, well, it's Joker. Well, it's it's this movie. It's that movie that caused the violence in the recent school shootings. I want to backtrack for a second here and, and let's go with Michael Moore's Bowling for Columbine. In my opinion, and again, this has nothing to do with politics whatsoever. As a filmmaker, I feel Michael Moore's Bowling for Columbine is a complete propaganda hit piece. And for a number of reasons... And I do believe that Trey Parker and Matt Stone of South Park might feel the same way because they were manipulated in this film as well. And Michael Moore goes after the gun industry. He ambushes Charlton Heston uh, in an interview, blaming, trying to blame him in the NRA uh, for a little girl's death. I believe it was an accidental gun shooting. Some kid brought a a gun to an elementary school. It went off, killed this little girl. Uh, Michael Moore did this hit piece and ambushed Charlton Heston, who walks out of the interview. But I did notice one thing. Michael Moore, if he did, it never made it to the final cut. Uh, While he goes around and looks at a bank that that gives away a rifle for opening an account, uh, creates uh, the history of guns in the United States with very South Park-like animation that he edited to make it look like that uh, Trey Parker and Matt Stone um, kind of, you know, uh, created that animation without saying it was an error of omission. It wasn't a lie. Uh, He didn't say that they created it. But if you watch the film, you'll see what I mean. You could be very easily led to believe that they created the animation for that, for which I understand, I I do not know if this is fact, but that those two guys, uh, that's why they made Michael Moore a hot dog slurping buffoon in Team America for their portrayal and manipulation in Bowling for Columbine. My point is, is while he went after a major department store for stocking ammunition and trotted in one of the survivors of, of Columbine, Uh, in my opinion, totally using this kid. He did not interview the parents of the two shooters. He did not interview any of the doctors who may have seen these kids. He did not interview anyone who really knew these kids. And most of all, the parents. Now, if he did, it did not make the final cut. And I would like to know why. If you're going to blame this culture of violence in the United States and show that Look, people in Canada, they don't lock their doors. I mean, apparently Canada is just a Shangri-La, which again, my question is, then why aren't you living there if it's so great? Or go to Cuba when you got pneumonia for your health care. You know, and I'm asking these questions again, not out of, out of political affiliation. I'm asking as a filmmaker. So why weren't these people interviewed? Because there were a lot more facts to this. The Matrix was cited by these kids. They did state that they believed that that the, the people they were killing were targets. And yes, we trot out the bullying thing and they were picked on and blah, 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 blah. We, we trot out these same excuses all the time, but no one is really looking deeply. And the first stop for me are antidepressants and psychotropic drugs. And we can look at that from Adam Lanza, up at Sandy Hook and and onward. I'd like to know how many of these people were on some kind kind of anti-anxiety medication, uh, anti-psychotic, antidepressant, and, and no one seems to be really publishing these statistics or looking into this. And this needs to be part, it is not all, but it needs to be part of that national dialogue. Instead of looking at Joker and saying Joker's the blame 
for the recent spate of violence and people fearing going to a movie theater. I can't emphasize enough the numbness and diseffect that has been brought on by social media and how it's transformed our dialogue and the way that we even argue or disagree with each other. In fact, it's become so contentious that sometimes people will just argue with you for agreeing with them. There are multiple things going on here. When the Slenderman killings went on, now nobody talks about that because it's not a mass shooting. Was Is Slenderman really the blame? Is the urban legend that started online and on YouTube and all of that stuff, is that to blame? What was the thought process with those two girls that they wake up one day and go, yeah, it would be a good idea to take this third girl, our friend, out into the woods and stab her to death to sacrifice her for a fictional character on the internet. What made that a good idea in their heads? I want to know the unraveling of that thought process. Again, I am not saying the internet is the sole cause for societal violence. I'm trying to get you all as my listeners to say, I'm going to go out and research this. I want to go and find out for my own edification what is really going on here. It is not as simple as blaming a movie. I've seen those bumper stickers where they say they took the Bible out of the classroom and now our children bring guns. That has nothing to do with it. And the Bible is one of the most violent books that's out there. That is bumper sticker mentality and it is dangerous. Okay, I got to bring it up. So all you Second Amendment law experts, constitutional experts, get ready. I do not believe that we have to have a need for these major assault weapons. No average citizen needs them. And I believe also part of the problem is is easy access to incredible power by some people who shouldn't even have a voice on the internet, let alone have a weapon in their hands of any kind. Now, I am not talking about banning guns. I'm not talking about coming around and taking guns. And, and let me even go even further as, as a historian, as, as someone with a degree in, in history. The genie is out of the bottle, folks. You are not able to physically take away everyone's gun in the United States. I mean, let's really think about that. Let's just say for argument's sake, the government tomorrow says the military is coming to your town and taking away your guns. They're going to come to every house. They're going to search every home and they are taking every gun. Let's just say they have the logistical power alone to do that. It's not happening because it can't happen. Number one, people are hiding their weaponry. That's one. And I'm telling you right now, there are people listening to me in this podcast right now that say, I got my shit where no one's ever going to find it and probably have a full arsenal somewhere on their property with easy access. No matter what they do, you're never taking away all the guns. Number two, we know how to make them. So with 3D printing and with gunsmiths out there, You're just going to make another gun. Look, you can make a plastic gun right now. You're never taking away the guns. So I wish somebody with some logic would just say that. It's not the popular answer, but it's the real one. I challenge anybody to come to me with a plan to confiscate every single weapon in the country. And then the second reason why is, 
Well, then you'll just stab each other, find another way to kill each other. Really? People don't know how to make explosives and, and, and mass explosives. People don't know how to do that. Hell, people have now got the technology to be able to probably build a small nuke in their basement. Unless Godzilla or the Predator or the Xenomorphs are coming for me, I don't see the need for any type of assault or military-grade cop-killing weaponry. I believe we have an overtaxed background check system. People can slip through the cracks. I mean, how many of these detective shows do you watch, like on Investigative Discovery, where people lied on on their gun purchase at a pawn shop or whatever? They lied. No, I've never been convicted of a felon. No. And they were. And they should not have the gun. And they've already broken a federal law. Look, the kids at Columbine, they got their hands on this weaponry through a gun show through a friend. And what stops you from borrowing a weapon from someone who is background checked and cleared? The net is there. But there are so many holes and they're big holes and people are getting through them. And then this goes right into, again, what I was talking about. And please look at the links that I've provided on this. Look at the timeline of mental illness in this country and the handling of mental illness. Look, we've had school shootings all the way back to the 1800s. This is not a new thing in the United States. People say, see, that's because we have guns. It's more than that. Again, I am not pinning all of this on a single thing. If you look at the more recent aspects of things, especially how the Reagan administration dismantled a number of support systems for the mentally ill in our society, we are now seeing what's coming out of this. Even Psycho 2 mentions this. When Norman comes home in Psycho 2, his doctor, Dr. Raymond says, I wish there weren't all of these government cutbacks. You'll have a trained social worker which will stop in on you or check in on you from time to time. But even that movie was making a commentary on the the administration's handling of the mentally ill. Now we have people that used to have places to go that ensured they took their medications, that made sure they got access to medications and they got therapy They're now left wandering the streets. So look at that timeline of mental illness, especially from the Carter administration starting in 1976 and what Carter did to create a network to help the mentally ill and and to provide services to Reagan's dismantling of that very same system. And now I got to roll into the other one that I hear a number of people say, and that is the loss of parenting. I watched it as a kid. When I was in high school, I used, I used to work at a video rental store. And then the amount of parents that would come in knowing that some shitty weather was coming up and in the summertime, the VCR was the babysitter. Or when I ran a movie theater in the late 80s as a manager, parents would just come up and drop their kid off at the box office and go, I'll see you in two, three hours. And these kids are going into anything. And I'll never forget when two parents, a mother and father, walked in to bring, I'm telling you, this kid was like five years old, five, six years old. They're bringing this little boy into basic instinct. And when I stopped them, just in case thinking they might be walking into the wrong movie, I said, folks, just so you know, this is basic instinct, probably not for the tyke here. You know what both of them said almost in unison at the same time? That's okay. We're from New York. I grew up with a grandmother and a mother that would watch the content that I watched with me. All those horror films I grew up with, it was my grandmother that sat with me 
and said to me, well, now, you know, that's makeup, right? You know how they did that, right? You know, that's a rubber mask if you're, if you're scared of that. And even explaining, my grandmother knew at that time how they applied all the yak hair and stuff to Lon Chaney Jr. to become the Wolfman. I was eight years old when my mother took me to see Jaws in the original 1975 run. And my mother sat there explaining to me because I was the one who wanted to see it. My mother was like, are you sure you want to see this? Would you rather see a Disney movie? There were a couple films out. I'm like, no, I want to see Jaws. That's what I want to see. And my mother sat with me and explained, that is a robot shark. That's fake blood. That's rubber. All that stuff. My mother explained it to me and I got to hold her hand. And then we discussed the movie afterwards. And I'm not kidding you. That's when after... I understood what went into making a movie, aside from seeing that audience stand up and applaud at the end of that motion picture. For me, that was the first time I ever saw anything like that. I knew I wanted to make movies after seeing Jaws. And I heard somebody say one time that Jaws was X-rated for anybody over 30. But I had someone that walked me through it. My mother sat with me. She said, you know, in real life, sharks really don't do that. Yes, some sharks have eaten people. They've attacked people and talked about it. We had a dialogue. We have lost a lot of that. We have parents now that school has become a daycare for their kids. They're working all the time. Look at the parents of the killer's in Columbine. They were too busy commuting to nearby big cities to support that suburban homestead instead of keeping an eye on what their kids were doing. I read one article where a neighbor went over and said to one of the parents, I don't know which one it was, said, you know, it looks like one of your kids is building a pipe bomb in the garage. And that neighbor was basically told to go mind their own business. Our children also have an incredible access to technology, technology that we never had before, and they have incredible outreach and power. The phones that are in their hands are incredibly powerful tools. This is happening at such a rapid rate that the technology has far exceeded the ability for legislation or even morality to keep up. This technology is almost alien technology that has been come down. Imagine aliens giving uh, people from the 1700s or 1800s an incredible powerful weapon that is that makes the atomic bomb look like nothing. Would they have had the mental resources or compassion or long-term thought to think about the eventual destructive power of this weapon or would they have just used it to wipe out their enemies? So again, I would love to hear people's feedback on this because with this rise of suburbia and loss of parenting, we have boredom. And in addition to that, we have even, for example, the affluenza killer. Go Google that and see what I mean. We also have children because you start adding the psychotropic drugs and the numbing and and the loss of empathy, and then you move them out of where they used to live, and they're in these big, boring suburbs with houses that all look the same. And before you know it, death becomes nothing. It becomes almost like a video game, which goes back to Columbine. And again, I'm not blaming video games. And then you have people that just simply become bored. And for some, what is the ultimate thrill? I'm going to give you an example right now. I just concluded the Dracula series on Netflix, the the mini series, whatever you want to call it. Found it interesting. And while I felt that the third episode misfired, particularly in the casting of Lucy, uh, a very average and uh, meh kind of actress who is nothing like what they wrote her to be. 
And, and the one interesting thing about it was, is that her character did not fear death. She was this extremely self-absorbed, selfie-taking kind of partying. Life is, you know, a mile wide, inch deep kind of girl that death had no real impact on her. She was numb to it, which attracted Dracula because he feared death. And the fact is, some of them, death went, like even the Columbine killers and, and others who have said that have survived said that shooting down these people meant nothing to them. Death means nothing. And, and you're being faced with the death penalty yourself for those who didn't blow their brains out and take the coward's way out and are sitting in jail. And they're like, yeah, so now I'll sit on death row for 10, 20 years. They'll write a book. They'll get a TV show. And then on top of it, a lot of these survivors are getting fan mail from the very generation and age group that they just shot up. There is something wrong here. The, the impact or the permanency of death is not making the impact that it used to be. And I'll give you another example real fast, and this really is stretching it, but I got to mention it just for the sake of it. In The Rise of Skywalker, they did something really strange. And in the earlier Star Wars films, you know, death was kind of like, you know, yeah, you, you could come back maybe as a Force ghost, but now it's it's no big deal to die. Like, you can die and you can come back and you can be a ghost and you can, uh, you know, move things with, with just the power of being a ghost and you can catch lightsabers and lift X-wings. Death is really just kind of only a minor inconvenience anymore. Death means nothing. There's no permanency. And although that's really, I'm really reaching there, my point is, is that we have a generation also of, of, of kids and growing into adults that don't really see the impact or the long-term ramifications of death and thus murder and killing. I know what I sound like and I have no single answer for any of this and I'm not saying any single one of these is the complete answer and I can be wrong. Then let's open up a dialogue with people who do know what they're talking about and really talk about this and expose these problems no matter how hurtful painful or unpopular or politically incorrect they may be. I also provided a link uh, about the location and the demographics of, of most of these mass and school shootings. And I will say this, while there are plenty of murders at the poverty level all the way through the wealthy level, most of these mass shootings and school shootings are taking in, taking place in upper middle class white suburbia and white suburban schools. I Right now, I mean, I did a lot of research here. I can't find any schools in the urban setting, you know, inner city with mass shootings. These are wealthier schools in suburbia. There is something to this. I don't know what, but I'm saying, please look at the articles that I provided and take a look at that and look at the data that is coming forward and find your own data. Because I know some of you are saying right now, oh, you're, you're leftist, you're conservative. I am not either, I'm telling you. And I'm not asking to take your guns. What I'm trying to say is, is that this is a multifaceted problem that cannot be blamed on a single motion picture or the entertainment industry. They may bear some responsibility for those who cannot handle or are unable to process reality and thus entertainment properly, 
but there is a problem that needs a very broad spectrum examination. So now let's take a look at Joker with all that said. And I'm going to go into this by saying I am no superhero comic book guy. I enjoyed Christopher Nolan's Dark Knight series. I I enjoyed them. I like Richard Donner's Superman. Uh, You know, I I tried getting through some of the Marvel stuff. and, And for me, it just doesn't resonate. That's fine for people who do. I'm not a DC Universe guy. I, I did watch Batman versus Superman, Justice League, Wonder Woman. I, I've looked at all of that. Doesn't really do much for me. However, I'm, I'm going into this by saying that I was kind of dragged to see Joker, but I wanted to see it because of a lot of the references to Martin Scorsese, who was, I believe, offered to direct the motion picture. And somebody online got on my case about saying, I don't see where you're drawing comparisons to Taxi Driver. It bears no resemblance at all. My response back to that person was, you don't know movies. Because if you're saying that, then I don't know what movie you saw, but you definitely didn't see Taxi Driver and you don't know what you're talking about when it comes to film. I'm going to classify Joker as a horror movie. It's a social horror movie. And, And while I've seen others label it psychological horror, I, I mean, I find it right up there as a social horror film with One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest and and Seven and even Network. I'm telling you, man, I classify Network as a social horror film. Nurse Ratched is one of the scariest villains ever put to film. And while my podcast is not about movie reviews, I got to tackle some of this to get to my point. Joker is not cinema, C-Y-N-E-M-A, which is why I'm, I'm going to take the time after all of that stuff talking about social implications. I'm going to take the time to talk about it a little bit. They don't need me to defend their movie. And, and this has generated wonderful publicity for the motion picture and curiosity. The film is done extremely well financially. It's going to breed a sequel and it's, it's going to get awards. So the controversy has definitely helped whether now what I do think could be cynical is that maybe they played into a lot of that fear factor to generate this publicity and get people talking about the movie. And if so, it's either one of the most uh, ingenious marketing plans for a motion picture or one of the most cynical. What Warners and Disney have done with quote-unquote comic book movies can be debated forever. And and already there, there's been more than enough written about their production and validity as real cinema. We've had Martin Scorsese uh, attack Marvel movies, which causes a dust-up with fans. And we even had Jennifer Aniston say something. And, and that leads me to invoking the grit films of the last golden era of American cinema, which was the 70s, a very unique time. I mean, Joker has been compared to Taxi Driver. I mean, the movie also had uh, the feel of Serpico and and Dirty Harry and and even the French Connection. I mean, hopefully somebody listening to this says, yeah, man, absolutely. From the very first frame of the cinematography, you are transported back to like 1981, but it, it feels more like 1974. I mean, the film opens with the old school Warner Brothers logo. I mean, one that I haven't seen since the 80s. It, I think the last time was like at the front of The Shining or or that Clint Eastwood movie, Every Which Way But Loose or his Dirty Harry films. Its opening titles are a hybrid of old 70s and 80s with, with a dollop of 1930s. Oddly, there, there is a faint hint of, of Tim Burton's set design here. I mean, it's, it's cleverly interwoven into the realistic city and sets and fused with Nolan's like Chicago backdrop. I mean, it's really a, a masterpiece. The first opening minutes are a masterpiece of set design and, 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 and art 
art direction. It really is. And the kicker is, is that we are completely transported back to New York City before its mid-80s Giuliani transformation and renaissance. In many ways, Joker is a nightmare Benny and June with, with Joaquin Phoenix's like this grotesque Johnny Depp. For me, there was no hope. I mean, the whole movie is, is a pretty bleak setting. I mean, the sanitation strike pileups of garbage that, that line almost every street and alleyway in the film. And this is ancient Rome. It's, it's complete with super rats and a city looking for its Caesar or Tiberius while, while feasting on bread and circuses with all eyes to Robert De Niro's Johnny Carson clone or Murray Franklin, more like Joe Franklin, and his inexplicably popular live talk show. Look, I gotta remember that, man. I never saw why people, especially New Yorkers, love Joe Franklin. He's one of the most dull guys on television. But you know what? I could say the same about Larry King, but... My God, people loved him. But, you know, I'm a big fan of Dick Cavett. And other people have said, you know, Dick Cavett was such a boring interviewer and and host. And he had, like, more shows than he deserved. But, I don't know, I always dug Dick Cavett. So, you know, I guess it's a personal thing. Joaquin Phoenix's Arthur Fleck is is Travis Bickle. He's Rupert Pupkin and, and every other disenfranchised, mentally disturbed guy we've come across in the 70s and early 80s film. With one click, he could have been a Vietnam vet and the scars of war brought him to his transformation. And folks, it's not a slippery slope. Of course, this evokes Taxi Driver. This whole movie is like a Valentine to Scorsese, man. De Niro is not cast happenstance here. I mean, Taxi Driver is this film's soul, but the king of comedy is also a major ingredient in Joker, another Scorsese film. Gotham is is New York City of the 1970s, and if the production design is not nominated for an Oscar, it's a crime. I forgot I was watching a 2019 film and was completely transported back to an era long gone, man. I'm telling you, the film is a visual delight and perfectly captures the 1970s American cinema, and, and, and yet, as I said, has small hints of Tim Burton in there and, and Nolan. They're all they're all peppered about to let you know we are still part of the comic book universe. Look, I'm going to get it out of the way. Joker is artistry. It is narrative filmmaking restored to form and it has changed the evolution of comic book translations to screen. And I will go as far to say that it makes Marvel films look silly. But there are those that will argue that, that really nothing should be compared and, and let Joker stand on its own accord. And, and that's fair enough. However, I am not sure after leaving the film that I want my comic book films to to be so deep into reality territory. I mean, someone correct me, but if we count Joker as a comic book film, it's the first to have fuck dropped into it. Am am I wrong in that? Is Joker the first movie to have fuck in it, like in the way of of comic books, whether Marvel or DC? I mean, I watched Godzilla, King of the Monsters do the same thing, you know, last summer, and and I was really disappointed in that. Did, Did Godzilla, did a Godzilla movie really need fuck dropped into it? Look, I'm not a prude, I'm not overly conservative, and I'm certainly certainly not offended. I mean, for Joker's world, it it works and I get it. So, so be it. I may have also grown really weary of, of the bleak, depressed superhero movie. I mean, Superman breaks Zod's neck in Man of Steel and, and allowed thousands to die and broods throughout while, while taking on an equally depressed and maniacal Batman and Batman versus Superman. And even Nolan's Dark Knight series offers hope, but but there is still good out there. And it and Nolan's series did say that people are capable and deserving of that good. But I will say, man, Joker offers none of that. People suck. That's what Joker says. That's what I got out of it. Society is shit 
and we get what we deserve. The best we can hope for is not pissing off the psychos that will eventually come for us all because we created them. I don't know if I want a Superman movie featuring a hardcore love scene. I mean, picture Superman naked on top of Lois Lane, slamming her real good like Cavill and Adams or or close-ups of their orgasms, or even moving into, you know, bondage territory. I still like my Lex Luthor leaning toward Gene Hackman than Kevin Spacey's knife-stabbing villain. I mean, I'm, I'm not sure I want Lex brutally murdering people and that psycho glint in his eye. I mean, I get it. Lex is a bad guy. I get all of that, and he's not, he's not mentally right. But man, I, I still like Gene Hackman's Lex Luthor, at least Superman 1 and 2 Lex Luthor. The dark thing has worked for Batman for sure. I, I mean, Tim Burton dispelled the ghost of, of the Adam West Batman TV series, which by the way, director Todd Phillips and Joker gives a wonderful blink and you'll miss it nod to. You gotta find it, I'm telling you. And once you see it, you'll know it. And Nolan expanded into reality by, by ditching the cartoonish feel of the 80s films. And, and I exclude the Schumacher films altogether, which took the series back to the television territory. I really do. I mean... Uh, a friend once told me that the decline of comic books started when they stopped making them for kids. I, that really made an impact on me when he told me that. He said once they catered to the older crowd that grew old with the industry, they abandoned the principles that that made these worlds and characters great. Look, I was not a comic book kid growing up, so I can't say he is right or wrong but his convictions are firm as as he was a comic book kid and these heroes are superheroes, right? They transcend human. So why the massive effort to take that away and make them human? I mean, I get it, and the new angles are always cool, but but I gotta say, I prefer Christopher Reeve's overgrown Boy Scout Superman to Cavill's brooding GQ model angry guy. Joker is a Batman movie. Don't, don't let anyone tell you different. The Thomas and Bruce Wayne characters loom large here and, and behind everything. We are waiting for Bruce Wayne because we know this is the start of two dark journeys that will lead to a collision course. It may be Joker's story, but it really is in the end. It's Batman's movie. The direction and editing ha have been scrutinized, but what Todd Phillips does best is he allows us to stay on a scene a tad longer than we should. Lesser directors would have cut away from things to keep the beat and momentum of our, our MTV rapid fire editing attention spans. Instead, Phillips allowed his camera to come into a scene and, and like invite us. And then it, it kept us there long enough that, that we almost wanted to beg him to let us go. This is illustrated beautifully when Fleck kills his former coworker, Randall, I think he was. We, we feel for the little person in that scene, his coworker, the little guy, who just wants to be let out of that apartment turned crime scene. And, and so do we. Like, I remember sitting in, in my seat going, shit, just let the guy out, because I want out. That's great filmmaking, man. The cinematography took us back to a, a, a time that, that made the illusion complete. I mean, the set design is phenomenal down to the shit and grit on the walls and streets and trains and buses and every car is perfectly used. I could just get lost in the art and production design of Joker. Take notes, future set designers. This is the film to examine, I'm telling you. And while some complain that the plot is flat and even derivative or Phillips' direction uninspired and dull, I counter the Phillips wanted to get us into the mundane, the everyday, and build us up from there. 
Flex's transformation from a truly disturbed man who's barely holding his shit together into the demigod Joker in the final street scene is, is true filmmaking, and he allows it to evolve without forcing the issue for audiences that require much of their entertainment spoon-fed with hand fists. I'm telling you, there is no spoon-feeding here. There are no wild camera angles or moves. Phillips uses a restrained style to let us flow with the narrative. This is back to 70s storytelling, and those with attention disorders might find the film not only boring, but confusing. That's because it takes its time, and it doesn't telegraph its plot in quick visual bites. There is nothing confusing in Joker. All you gotta do is pay attention and appreciate some good storytelling. Joker is also a good analogy to the end of the Roman Empire, a society that is in decay and oblivious to its own demise. All you got to do is listen to the opening of this podcast, folks, and there it is. Now, another criticism of the film is, is that it, it attacks those who have had privilege, you know, and white privilege and, and all of these things. So I'm just going to say this, you know, I don't uh, validate Arthur Flex taking matters into his own, own hands thing and, and killing uh, Robert De Niro in the film and, and that somehow he's justified and we should applaud his efforts. I have worked for everything I have. I grew up poor with rats in my dirt floor basement, knocking them from my pantry shelves as a boy to fight for the puffed wheat cereal. And I I really did do that. My mother dated an alcoholic, abusive man who knocked my tooth out at the table for not asking for the salt. My nickname from this guy at home was Little Faggot. And in school, I was called a faggot because I couldn't play sports and I wasn't as masculine, I guess, as some of the other guys that were around me. I had no wealthy parents to lavish nepotism on me for filmmaking. I I failed out of college. I went back. I paid for it myself by going into debt. And I paid off that debt and yada, yada, yada. Now I make movies. However, I don't make Max Landis level movies because I don't have a father who made Animal House or Coming to America or American Werewolf in London. I'd like to know when my white privilege kicks in, please. Can can someone please just notify me of this? Because I didn't get the memo. So whatever I have, is as little as I have in the film world, I feel is waiting to be taken away from me by people like Arthur Fleck. I lived next door to people who needed their meds, didn't take them, and felt it was okay to help themselves to what I had because they deemed me as having too much. I mean, I, I've seen this. So there was a moment at the end of Joker when De Niro gives his... So you felt it was okay to shoot three guys because they were dick speech that I found myself nodding with De Niro. And I had to catch myself because Arthur is sick. He had a hard life of physical abuse by a mother who wasn't fit to raise a hamster, let alone a child. Arthur was probably made mentally unstable from brain damage as to the abuse inflicted upon him. He turned around and took care of the mother who allowed it. But she was also disabled by her own illness. Is everyone in society sick? CCI, take this right back to the beginning of this podcast. Joker had me despising Arthur and yet chastising myself for being unsympathetic to him and and what brought him to his point. But in that respect, should we afford people like John Wayne Gacy or Ted Bundy the same respect? I mean, let's go all the way and excuse Hitler's bad behavior on his own home problems and abuse and, and mental illness possibly coming from syphilis. I mean, where do we draw the line? Will compassion help this situation? How do we rein in the pharmaceutical industries? Or how do we streamline the social welfare system to to get the people that really need help the help they need? Again, taking this all back to the start of this podcast. I don't know the answer. 
And that's why I left this film with bleakness in my heart. I wanted to pack my things, head out west to Montana or Wyoming, and never see another human being again. So now I guess I'm guilted for being born white, Caucasian. Now I'm guilted for working my way up and for what I've done for myself. I I guess that's what it is. I have to afford compassion for people who kill, for people who can't or won't abide by society's rules. I have to look at the story of each child molester, killer, or dangerous individual. Is that what I have to do? While Fleck does not seem to be a danger to children in the movie, I don't know if I can find compassion for a real-life pedophile who records his abuses for his own entertainment or to share it on the dark web with other sick individuals. I mean, is that what some people are asking me to do? I don't know if I believe people like that can be rehabilitated. I don't know if people with severe mental illnesses should be out there in the streets, driving cars, or having children. And yet I, I feel there are no answers. It's not up to me to decide who has kids and who doesn't. I mean, that's what the Nazis tried to do, right? But I do feel there is little hope for us as a species or to clean up our act. We, we will struggle along until we finally just collapse in on ourselves. And for me, Joker is foreshadowing a, a sneak peek to the inevitable ending of all of us. Even Batman is a temporary fix. Batman can't change attitudes or values. Batman and his kind are, are chemotherapy. It might stall the progress of the cancer, but the cancer is eventually going to get you. I'm going to start winding this down by saying that the Joker is an allegory to Rome in its final years of decline. The masses became dumb and fat on victory, becoming detached from their government and, and their moral and political responsibilities. Living wages were created inside the fat, victorious empire, allowing people not to work and, and take the dole, I'm putting that in quotes because that's what they called it, and get lost in endless entertainments while oblivious to the cancer growing from inside their society. And if you don't believe me that this is happening, go look at the video of Kim Kardashian giving you a tour of her walk-in refrigerator. That was on the news yesterday. The barbarians amassing outside the realm are, are sharpening their knives to breach the gates and they are the masses in, in Joker in their clown masks, ready to tear down Gotham's walls and, and to get the indifferent elite that shunned them for so long. I mean, Thomas Wayne imperiously dismisses the downtrodden as clowns and unwittingly gives birth to a monstrous movement. And that's our society today. Roughly 10 individuals on this planet control almost all of its wealth. We live in a world where celebrities flaunt their excess at every turn to idol-worshipping dumb fucking fans. The middle class is all but gone. Dollar stores and austerity have crept into our regular worlds while the elite dine in towers and on super yachts and they wag their fingers about climate change while their excess is the heaviest carbon footprint of all. You hear that, Greta? Instead of coming over here and kissing the ass of Leonardo DiCaprio and Arnold Schwarzenegger, you should have been wagging your finger at them. America is Gotham, and we have our jokers, as the cynical media campaigns love to point out, up to and after the film's release. What we need is a Batman, and I don't see one in sight because the system allows for the reality of a villain like Arthur Fleck. It does not allow the same building blocks for a Batman. Our Bruce Waynes are running online stores or social media empires and sucking up attention for space programs or, or caught in a dead pedophile sex ring. Right now, I would settle for just a Jim Gordon at this point. So I left the movie thinking the Joker goes unchallenged. I left this movie without hope and I left with contempt for my fellow man. Todd Phillips and I think Phoenix would be pleased with that. 
This is Harrison Smith. Take a look at the links I provided. Open a dialogue about this. Let's really talk about something important.